0: The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Okay, so we have a very special guest today, Olivia Troye, who's a director with the Republican Accountability Project. This, This is a conversation I... It really was happy to have with somebody who's um, really become a ubiquitous presence on cable news and national media everywhere, talking about um, her experience in the Trump White House as a lifelong career national security official, um, served in Vice President Pence's office, and then became a notable outspoken critic of what has become known as the big lie surrounding the last election and particularly the events of January 6th. So she, you know, she comes at this from a unique perspective in a few ways. One, she's a lifelong conservative Republican intelligence officer. No one is going to be able to claim that she is somehow a partisan biased liberal in this process. So she's somebody who's worth hearing for sure. She also has a tremendous amount of personal expertise in the areas of national security that underlie the events of January 6th and I, I know a lot of people don't want to hear about January 6th anymore a lot of people would choose to just forget that it ever happened or pretend that it ever happened or not look at the pictures or not look at the videos and I think that's one of the most dangerous instincts we can actually have as a society is to forget history um, even when that history is raw and fresh as this is and so she has she is one of the leaders in her organization is one of the leaders in holding Republicans to account as as their name would apply, the Republican Accountability Project, to make sure that we have an honest betting of what actually occurred that day, what we need to learn from it and what we can do to make sure that it never happens again. And we'll particularly focus on one member of the California congressional delegation in this context, Kevin McCarthy and his particularly important role in this process. So I, I don't think there's a more important event in um, recent American history than what happened on January 6th. I think it'd be um, a huge, uh, huge blow to our progress as a democracy if we don't examine this event in detail. And uh, that's exactly the topic we're talking about on this podcast. So I hope you'll listen. I think Olivia has a tremendously important message. I hope you'll share this episode and we look forward to hearing your comments and feedback on the show. Stick with us. There's more to come after this quick break. This is the Nation State of Play podcast powered by Neptune Ops.
1: Today, everyone needs to think like an entrepreneur, whether it's in your own business, a large organization, or a nonprofit. I'm there for you, baby. The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy celebrates entrepreneurs. You can find us on IVN.us or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Nation State of Play podcast. Olivia, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's great to have you as a guest.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me.
0: So uh, if you don't mind, I would love if you could give a little bit of overview of your organization. You've been in the news a lot over the last election cycle, and you've been ubiquitous on on cable news, so uh, but if you could kind of give a little bit of overview of how you started and what you're focused on, that would be super helpful for our listeners.
1: Yeah, so more recently, uh, we are the Republican Accountability Project that was launched literally days after the January 6th events that happened at the U.S. Capitol, and it was really more in response to what we saw in terms of what drove um, the situation there, what led to that very unfortunate day um, and irresponsible leadership. Specifically in the Republican Party that uh, propelled this narrative of the big lie, uh, and our you know our goal was really to call for accountability of what has happened here, and also support those that took a stand after January sixth, whether it was in the impeachment hearing for Donald Trump um, in support of it, and really took a stand for our democracy. And so that's kind of where the project launched. Um, you know, it was the second, I would say reiteration or continuing continu- um, organization of Republican voters against Trump, which played a big role in the uh, 2020 election. Um, but now we are sort of moving forward and what's going on within the Republican party and certainly have been advocating on major issues, whether it's you know issues that touch upon Homeland Security, which is really national security is more my background. And so that's really where I've been focused for the past two decades. Um, other than coming forward now and being more on the advocacy side of the house on some of these uh, issues. And then also just sort of focusing on current events that continue to sort of, I would say, create grievances across our society and in terms of the Republican party. And you know we're looking at voting rights and other issues, which we can get into a little bit more.
0: Yeah, well, so let's let's go ahead and start back at January sixth there, and you know, obviously, We have been unable to even get an independent commission in the 9-11 style, which I know you've got a deep background in, to examine those events of that day. What is your take on what type of commission or what type of investigations should be going on generally?
1: Well, I quite honestly, we advocated for a January 6th bipartisan commission, a 9-11 style commission that really uh, we had hoped that in good faith, uh, the Republicans uh, would support and vote for. But as we all saw, there was a lot of, uh, I would say, um, there were a lot of obstacles posed for this commission. And in the end, they voted it down. And the reason for that is we just thought that it would be uh, best. Um, We think it's very important for the American people to know and understand the truth in a factual manner about the events that led to that day, what happened that day. And also that just the national security concerns that remain, in play right now today, I would say, um, across the homeland uh, in terms of some of the groups we saw present that day and sort of the coordination that went on. And also what happened in terms of the national security community and the law enforcement apparatus? What were the failures that really took place there so that we can learn from it? That's what we learned from the 9-11 Commission. Uh, It was helpful um, for the national security apparatus to really look at what we were facing globally in terms of terrorism and where the gaps were. And so But we really wanted this to be a bipartisan investigation that we could learn from with recommendations. And so, you know, we are, uh, you know, we have the January 6th committee now, and uh, we are supportive of it. I'm glad that there is some sort of entity that is trying to look at this from a very factually based manner. And I'm grateful that people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are participating in it. Uh, And I think that they were certainly the correct choices that would look in this, look at this from a bipartisan point of view. I mean, like, you can't argue with Liz Cheney's conservative track record, nor with Adam Kinzinger's track record. These are true conservatives who have voted across party, like, on the party line in the past. And so you can't argue with their credentials, other than the fact that they have taken a stand for our democracy repeatedly.
0: So... I think you're in a unique position to understand the value of a 9-11 style commission, because I'm sure with your extensive background in national security, you relied on the work of that committee a lot in understanding the threats that we were facing as a country. So, um, But for the rest of America, it it was 20 years ago. If if you can maybe just explain a little more why that process and the work that came out of the 9-11 commission was so valuable and what we're trying to recreate with the January 6th committee to the extent possible now.
1: I think in terms of national security, I think the 9 Commission really helped us understand where the gaps were in uh, the intelligence community. Where you know how is the FBI coordinating um, with the Central Intelligence Agency, and also you know it was also the impetus for creating the Department of Homeland Security and entities like the National Counterterrorism Center that I spent quite a few few years working at. Uh, in terms of how the coordination of information flow really happens across the community and breaking down some of the silos that existed within it that really made us stronger as a community when it came to countering um, foreign terrorism and global terrorism. And also a lot of the fixes in terms of whether it be databases talking to each other, which is technology as a thing, or understanding what kind of fixes needed to be created going forward so that we are able to look at this in a more holistic way or manner as a U.S. government. And so I think a lot of the recommendations that are given that report or a lot of the things that it found weren't necessarily people not doing their jobs or things like that. It's more about how the community kind of interacts and how we come together to counter some of these threats and um, also looking at sort of the screening and vetting apparatus of who's coming into the country. And I think we've come a long way in terms of the community and how we're able to kind of function as a cohesive unit when it comes to this. I will say that uh, domestically, we have a long way to go. And I think that this is why a January 6th committee and what their findings will show in terms of um, the national security side, putting aside whatever political role some of the politicians or leaders played in terms of what they were saying in their narratives, a secondary effect of this is really looking at sort of the gaps and seams, what happened that day, where was the failure in terms of the information flow of it, what was a failure to act? I certainly don't believe that this was an intelligence failure, personally. I do think it was a failure to act upon the intelligence that was there, which we're seeing uh, sort of come forward as we get these investigations, these court cases, and a lot of the media reporting that we've seen, but there really needs to be a cohesive understanding and report of why didn't the Capitol Police react? Why weren't there there fencing or scaffolding around when there was gonna be such a large event? What did DHS do? Why didn't they put out the usual warnings that they normally do for a large event? Why didn't that happen? Sort of a lot of just questions here on what led to the scenario of events that you see that day. Outside of, we can also talk about what was happening in terms of the, the rhetoric and the public statements being made that were sort of driving, sort of, I would say, uh, and fueling the flames of people who were, who were feeling like, who were feeling emboldened, right? And who felt that they were within their right and were coming to DC um, very politically charged in a narrative that was told to them and something that they believed in. And, you know, you hear them talk about that. You hear them talk about that. They really believed in why they were there and you've heard from a lot of the defendants now who were there, who are being charged to say, I mean, I thought that it was my patriotic duty to be there. I thought that this is what I was told. Some of them say I, maybe I was misled. But I think all of that is kind of the overall picture on why, why a committee kind of looking at all of these different pieces and how they come together uh, on such a massive failure mm-hmm. of protecting the U.S. Capitol and our U.S. leadership. You know, the vice president was there. I mean, his life was in danger. The leaders of our country were in danger. We came really close um, and, and you know people got hurt, lives were lost that day, what truly happened? And I think that is where it's important to really kind of understand this um, and also have this account for historical purposes and hopefully this prevents something like this from happening again, because I am concerned that this sort of dynamic and threat continues to exist right now, today.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a great description of why we need it. I, I want to make what might sound like a stylistic point in question about the 9-11 commission report, but I but I actually think this is an important point is I think one of the great triumphs of the 9-11 commission report is it, it was really readable. Um, it was something that the American people could pick up and they were picking it up. I mean, I remember there was like copies in every bookstore. It was, like on the be- it was actually on the bestseller list. It's like you get. I think they did it some way where you could pick up a copy for five dollars. I can't think of another government report on anything that people have read Wiley and, you know, it kind of read like a. If anybody's listening who hasn't read it, it reads like a spy novel. It starts with a flash forward of like the day of the event, and then it goes back and lays the history. And if you know, if, if you like a Tom Clancy book, you'd love this. Um, but it's real. That's that's the only. It's real. Difference, right. you know, and it and I and I think that was such an important. Again, I know that may sound superficial, but I think that in some ways help made it so powerful because it was good communication and it sunk in to a broader swath of the population. We were able to, as you say, make like huge structural changes to the intelligence apparatus based on that. Um, and I think that that is so important to have with January 6th because my personal experience, and I, I wonder if you notice this with people you interact with is, I, I will talk to some conservative friends who, who can't even acknowledge what happened that day. Like they, they, there's there's almost like a cognitive dissonance. It's like, it's so bad that they can't even say there was a pro-Trump mob that attacked the Capitol. They, they kind of joke it off. It just seems like it doesn't even penetrate because squaring up with the reality of what happened is so intense. And I, and I wonder what your conversations are like with people in and out of government when, when you're talking about this. Mm-hmm.
1: I think, you know, I think it varies. To be honest, I I think that there is sort of a, like you said, some of them there is a disconnect there where they that day um, has, let them, I mean, has left them sort of, in shock over what happened, how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that a lot of it, it's it's conflicting narratives. To be honest, on on opinions and beliefs, I mean, there are some that I've talked to who are convinced that those were not Trump supporters still today, even though they're covered in Trump paraphernalia. I mean, it's it's nothing about MAGA hats, it's and in their own words, they are there because Donald Trump sent them and there's sentiments like that that are publicly stated and they call Mike Pence a traitor uh, openly uh, and very vocally and they're there because of the election because they really actually believe the election was stolen. I think there's a certain population out there still today um, and people that I've talked to who, really do actually believe that the election was stolen. And I think that that's one aspect of it. I think that there's another aspect of, I've talked to conservatives and Republican voters or moderates as well who are appalled and in shock that it went that far. And I think it was sort of almost a moment of reality check for them, of wait, what is really actually happening here? That was was a bridge too far, Um, this is scary. And that was very real. And as much as I disagree with election or I'm not a Biden fan. that crosses a line. And that was that was dangerous and too much. And so I think that was a moment of realization for some of them of like, okay, maybe maybe what's happening here is, is, has it bridge too far. It's gone too far. And so I think it's mixed. And then, you know, unfortunately we're in an era of disinformation that's uh, prevalent, very dominant. And I think in a world of, where conspiracies catch fire and get spread very easily. Um, I think that is part of the other thing that's driving driving this forward, right? Is what, what people actually believe happens that day. And I think it's super dangerous that there are nerds out there that think it was all a US government operation by the FBI. I mean, there are also those who are being, uh, who are subscribed to some of these series. And uh, honestly, to me, it's just so, It is scary to me to hear that because when I talk to people, they really strongly believe it and there's no reasoning that with them with facts. And I think it's sort of, I think it's just such a sign of where we are as a country right now. And, and I think it's concerning because I think it's going to further, you know, create a bigger divide. It continues to drive that forward today.
0: So so you as a national security expert i'm I'm curious as to what you were seeing that day um, as, a, as a layman I'm, I'm watching it and I have this friend who's uh, in, in law enforcement and he, he tends to make the point to me he's like, "Listen, society's more fragile than you think it is um, it, it It relies on some collective goodwill of the American population, and I'm sort of watching, and I sort of never believed that, or never or never understood what he was saying. I should say, and I'm watching this scene, and I'm thinking, "Wow, are we are we actually capable of protecting the Capitol, the vice president, the, the whole constitutional line of succession? It, it when it really comes down to it, if, if there's a true mob like that, what what is your take? I mean, you're an expert in this. Like, are we actually capable of protecting? the the leadership in DC, if we uh, sort of don't have the breakdowns that we did on January 6th?
1: Yes, I do believe that we are. I think that when the system works, it works. And I think that um, unfortunately, that day was very visibly something failed. There was a breakdown, whether it was in communications, again, whether it was a failure act to act something to me, as I watched the events unfold that day was egregiously wrong. And I had seen the warning signs. I had seen the warning signs on social media sites. I had seen a lot of the chatter and that chatter to me was very real. That threat was real. I had been, uh, I was vocal about it, uh, very publicly before January 6th, that I was concerned that there would be violence. Um, I was You horrified when I saw it sort of come to fruition that day. I will say that I was perplexed when I saw the images of the Capitol that morning, knowing that this was going to be a contentious thing um, with the vice president going and certifying the election results. Uh, And I was a little bit confused why there was no security parameter around the U.S. Capitol to the extent that I had seen sort of implemented previously the previous summer during large scale gatherings, whether it was protests, DC looked like a fortress. Uh, I was working in the White House at the time. I was leaving the White House every single day surrounded by scaffolding and fencing um, and and National Guard everywhere across the the city. Um, And it was just a little bit, I was taken aback by seeing that there was really no security parameter around there. And I was just, honestly, I was confused by it because I didn't know how you could see all of this happening and not act on it just as a precaution to prevent it. And so I think that is where the question lies is what really took place here. And then why does it take so long to respond to the events that unfold because this went on for a while and, you know, and those um, courageous officers really did do their best to hold the line and defend themselves against a mob that was attacking them uh, relentlessly. And I think You know, I watched um, I have to say I was I was also uh, I was shocked when Mike Pence comes out and puts out a statement saying it is my constitutional duty to go and certify those elections. Like he has to publicly tell everyone, hey, I'm going to go do this. I just want you to know there is no choice. This is my duty. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm getting in the motorcade. I'm heading over now. I don't think it's, I've ever it's, seen it's that
0: It's a little explicit as to where to find me and when, is your point.
1: Yeah, and I you know, I actually taped a podcast that, that morning where I said I'm very concerned for the vice president's life, the life of some of the leaders of our country today. I'm concerned that they may be in, in danger. I, that night, had to say that it was um, a little bit ominous and surreal to kind of watch it play out and just wonder and and just know that we came so close that day to it being even worse than what happened. Um, so, yeah, to your point, like I mean, I really am a big believer. Uh, democracy is fragile, and you have to care for it. And part of democracy are the systems of government that come together in moments like this. And you, um, and I think that in moments like this, that's when those systems really matter and they play a role. And I think it could have been that much worse. And I really think we got very lucky that it wasn't.
0: Oh yeah, me too. Um, I mean, cause I think, you know, uh, an assassination, which again, I think it's important to say it out loud cause it's clearly on the verge of what we were on of either the vice president or the speaker of the house or many members of Congress. And um, I don't. I don't think we'd be um, sort of arguing about whether we should have a commission about it. And uh, it's sort. It's sort of an right. interesting thing about risk, right? It's like um, you, you can walk right up to the line where clearly, like you know, you made some bad decisions, something went wrong. The worst didn't come true, and then we do this in a lot of places in life where we don't act on it, even though clearly, you know, we've been we've been fully warned. We we wait until um, you know unspeakable things happen to take action, that's sort of a weird part of human nature. So, so let me just d- d- dwell on one more point. So if we're having a typical State of the Union where similar, maybe the Supreme Court's not there um, for uh, January 6th, but other than that, it's kind of similar, right? We've got a ton of members, basically all of Congress and uh, the vice president, and I guess the president's there, that's the other main difference. Would there be way more security for a typical State of the Union than there was on January 6th?
1: Yes, absolutely. There's so much. There's so much planning that goes into it. Um, there's coordination across the board. There's a lot of planning and execution that goes into place to make sure that the parameter is secured and contingency plans on what if this, what if that. I mean, this is all part of continuity planning and also just uh, security operations and and part of how the apparatus comes together on events like this. So this. In many ways, should have been no different, and I think that's why this is kind of an anomaly on what's happening here. And you know, and the secondary anomaly is that uh, hard to believe that we were in a situation where we had elected leaders speaking at a rally mm. and um, sort of driving the crowd towards a fully, you know, a more um, angrier stance and, and telling them to head down to the Capitol. I mean, you have a group of people who are very passionate about what they believe in and you're setting them forward. And clearly they came came armed, right? And they came prepared. That is all evident Hmm. and very clear. And so I think that um, what is scary about this entire scenario is not only is the threat real of groups that attended and everything, but also just sort of uh, the rhetoric and what elected officials in power, we're saying that we're encouraging this moment that still continue, I would say, to encourage this type of behavior and violence when it comes to whether it be the election or going forward. That I remain concerned about for upcoming elections and upcoming scenarios. I don't see this kind of fading when you have people who continue to push uh, some of this rhetoric and lies. And, you know, I say lies because that's really what it is. There's no basis for it, but I think what it does though is that it continues to embolden this type of grievance-based violence that we're seeing as you know, as DHS has put out a threat advisory on this, that we will continue to see more of this and they're concerned. We saw it most recently with uh, the attempted or a bomb threat on the U.S. Capitol with that individual. And you know, all issues aside, I think it's very um, striking that he, goes to the U.S. Capitol, he drives there, right? That this is the symbolic place where he chooses. And I am concerned about what we are seeing in terms of some of the anti-government sentiment that continues to increase here. And it's not just at the U.S. Capitol. This is happening across the country. We're seeing it at state capitals as well. And so I think we, we remain concerned about what is going to develop here as we go forward.
0: Right after this, we'll have more with Olivia Trae from the Republican Accountability Project. You are listening to the Nation State of Play podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Miller. American democracy is good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country who are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear updates from the latest movements in the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org.
1: Do you have a business, nonprofit, or campaign that needs to break through the communications clutter? For over 10 years, IVC Media has developed a suite of digital tools, data sets, and creative techniques all to help corporate, government, and nonprofit organizations like you deliver authentic, innovative, and effective communications. Our teams in San Diego and Tijuana can help you overcome the most challenging communications projects in any language or location. Visit us today at ivc.media.
0: We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at at P one Again, that's at Nation State of P and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. So in terms of the January 6th commission, is, is in your mind there anything that this commission that we do have can't do that a truly 9-11 style commission could have done?
1: Well, I think the challenge will be uh, there's a whole population of of voters out there and people who I think no matter what will never believe the results as being factual and truthful Mm -hmm. by this committee. And I think that that's why it would have been better served to have this commission voted on, especially by Republicans themselves and participated on in a manner that was sort of willing, right? Sure. Instead of sort of kind of being being forced in, in, in a certain way. And so I think that unfortunately there, this will be seen by some as being partisan, which in reality, um, I truly believe and hope that it, that it will not be. And I believe um, that there's a very important role that this committee will play. Um, but it is unfortunate that this is how it's played out.
0: But, uh, and and I totally agree with you, of course. Legally, is there any difference in what this commission can do that a 9-11 style commission could have
1: done? No, I mean, I think they still have, I mean, they have subpoena power. Um, They have the ability to really request documentation, but honestly, um, I think it's going to be hard for them because I think that they're going to, what we're seeing now, they're, um, I think they're, they're going to face a lot of obstruction along the way, a lot of pushback on some of the requests that they're making, but I don't see their requests as outlandish or unnecessary. I think the questions that they've asked so far and the records that they've requested in terms of phone call logs and everything, that is all part of this investigation and honest conversation about who knew what, when, how did this unfold, who, fa- who acted, who failed to act, what was said. That's all part of it, in addition to what happened in the law enforcement aspect of it and the national security aspect. How does this all come together? And also the, what in the months that led up to this day, what was happening, what was being discussed and what was, what, what was being said and what was planned, what wasn't planned. And you know, I say this because there's, a, there's reporting out there that's been said where some of the organizations participating that day in the rally express concerns about what they were seeing and their concern about safety in terms of the crowd size and what was happening and who they were seeing uh, participate. And so when those concerns were raised, what happened? Was there any follow-up? When you say organizations,
0: you, you mean some of the protesting organizations that were participating? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's some of the rally
1: organizers and stuff, right? So there's been reporting on that. And so I, I think that is that's those are all valid questions. Uh, Because when you look, I mean, take a step back, if you're still a person who is supportive, a, a Trump supporter, and who has watched what happened that day, if you take a step back and look at that and say, okay, well, the own organizer, one of the organizers had a concern about crowd control, or the possibility that this would get out of hand, or how do you keep people safe? what other groups are involved if you have an organizer of an event who's clearly on trump's side obviously right cuz they're helping organize it but they're raising security concerns where were they raised who took those into account and, and why didn't they act on them why don't why aren't you protecting your own supporters then when it's your own supporter organizer saying i'm worried and yeah. i think you mm-hmm. know and i i i think that's a fair fair assessment when you take a step back from it and it, and really think about that <laughs> um, if you remain um, a supporter of that and think about the fact that your own life was likely put at risk when there were people flagging concerns about it. Absolutely.
0: So uh, I, I want to talk about a member of the California delegation um, who's, uh, you know, I, we're, we're known in California as sort of being liberal all la, la land, but Kevin McCarthy is a member of Congress. Which, and we actually have numerous members of Congress who are quite conservative and who, voted against the independent commission and continue to support the big lie in a lot of ways. But I, but let me start with Kevin's actions on that day, some sort of really strange flip-flopping and um, from, from what he was doing from one moment to the next. It, maybe at a high level, could you just kind of walk us through the, the TikTok of what he initially said and then what he said even a few hours later and what he's saying today?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Kevin McCarthy, I mean, he's quite the character, you know, I think that, like many Americans firsthand, his initial gut reaction was like, what has happened? This is awful. Um, This is, this is a horrific set of events. Um, And he, and he shows the concern and how upset he is, right? It comes forward, uh, you know, whether he's calling out Trump and what's happened very early on. um, I think he reacts like any of us did who watched in horror of what happened that day. So for a split second, I would say or for a couple hours that day, he is what most Americans were sort of feeling. And then what I think happens is that he realizes that politically this is not something that he can sustain. And I'm sure, you know, that he was he was part of the big lie that leads to this day and it's then an inconvenient truth to walk that back because he quickly realizes that he's in the middle of it and that he has sort of been one of the main proponents and has led the charge on all of this um, with the party that, you know, he supports and sort of is the figurehead of, unfortunately, right now. So I think, you know, then you see him come forward and then he starts to kind of, it's revisionist history where he sort of tries to memory hole the events of what happened that day. And it's the last thing that he wants discussed, especially when it comes to a commission or anything like that. So he tries to flip the narrative on its head and he tries to sort of double down on disinformation on it and what it would be and what it what it isn't. And so I think the last thing he wanted was to be having to answer some very hard questions about how this came to be. I'm sure he does not want to answer what his communications were with the president that day and what his communications were with the vice president or other members and even other members of Congress. Um, and like, I think we see that happen with others, right? We see we see people make powerful statements that day, that night in the US Capitol, you see senators like Mitch McConnell and they're angry and everything. And then that sort of fades with time um, and they walk it back. And I think that what McCarthy is sort of assessing and he continues to do is he is playing to that base. And by playing into it, he is emboldening it and enabling it. So it's sort of like this vicious cycle of a merry-go-round where you're on it and you can't get off of it because you've been a part of creating it, and so I think today, uh, I mean, he still behaves in this manner. He still, I was, I, it, it, nothing so kind of surprises me anymore when it comes to Kevin McCarthy, but it's pretty disturbing to have him sort of being overt in his threats now. Just more recently, I think uh, this week when he sort of state making statements about threatening phone companies or technology companies about handing over some of these records. Uh, I guess, you know, and that brings us, we had, we did, um, we had a billboard out in Kevin McCarthy's district wrapped it where it says, uh, what are you hiding? Uh, because what are you hiding? Why if you have nothing to hide then be transparent about it and clear the record, let the record show it, tell the voters the truth about what happened if there's nothing to hide. But the fact that you can't do that says a lot. I think about what's happening here. Um, so you know, I think uh, he continues to behave in a very reckless and shameful manner that I think is has been very harmful to true conservatism. Uh, I think this is he has enabled Trumpism to take hold of, of the party, and I think he himself is fully aware of it. And I think he, um, I think he's beholden to this base and. You know his fundraising efforts, but I think that quite frankly, he is a danger to our society by what he does because he is a leader and he knows better, and that is the worst part of it. All of these people who behave in such a manner know better,
0: yeah. So it's a fascinating sort of look into the, his psychology, and, and I, I guess what makes um, this investigation unique compared to other things we've done is the same people who need to participate in the investigation <clears throat> are witnesses in a lot of ways, or were act- even more than witnesses, like in Kevin's case, like an actor I- in this, right? So so what is in your mind fair game in terms of those communications? Is, are, there, are there any um, things that should be off the table? I mean, you know, we certainly wanna know if like, did he talk to the president? Who did he talk to in national security? Um, you know, I mean, what, what is, do we think, do you think there's sort of a line to say, okay, like, you know, some things might be off the table, but here's the type of things that I think are really important to the historical record?
1: Well, I think, I think the important things are to really understand, uh, when they spoke, what was said was that the, was there urgency expressed? Like we're seeing some people claim that they express urgency of, telling the president you have to call off this mob that's happening here, uh, we need help, uh, was an expression of where is the National Guard because we're being overrun and he, there's reports of the vice president even trying to figure out how to weigh in on that. And there's reports about Larry Hogan who is holding the National Guard at the Maryland line and why is he, you know, he's ready to go and he's con- like very concerned about the fact that he's not being given the order. So where is the holdup in all of this? What happ- What is happening at the Pentagon? So I think those communications are critical in terms of understanding, kind of whether there was actually explicit dereliction of duty, especially from and you know we probably suspect that there was from the Oval Office in terms of what was happening in the White House, especially people that were in the closest circle to Donald Trump and what what, the way their behavior on it. But I think conversations like that, like what you know, what did Jim Jordan actually say, or what did they discuss? What was the timeline for these phone calls? Was this before the mob started to go? Did they communicate before they communicate in the lead up to it in the days prior? What was actually being said? Was there any discussion about concern about some of the reporting where they were concerned about any threats or any concerns about safety? Was that even brought up anywhere? You know, I mean, wh- what was the planning that goes or discussions between our leadership across the country on the Republican side? And the president, because they were certainly communicating. um, And they were going to go there to many of them voted against certifying the election results, right, even after the mob hit. So like, I think, you know, what, what is actually happening here? And then what are they communicating with some of the supporters, in terms of some of the other representatives? What, what were they actually, were they talking to the supporters? Were they talking about coming to the Capitol in what nature was that conversation? I mean, there's so many questions here that really need to come to light. So I think that's all fair game, right? And so do they tell him or did, what does, and what does the president say back to them? Is, is he concerned? Is he concerned about Mike Pence's life and people calling for his hanging and that there's basically a gate chain set up outside where, or is he concerned about the actual lives of Nash- Nancy Pelosi uh, yeah. after he's been so publicly distasteful um, against her, right? And and criticizing her and public attacks. And so what is actually, what are the events that actually develop here? I think those are all fair game considering what really happened before our very eyes. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, communications between the chiefs of staff at the White House um, and did they communicate with members of Congress? Um, did they reach out to any other members of the Trump family or the inner circle? Uh, w- did they reach out to the Pentagon? Well, yeah, I mean, all of that I think is fair to really understand the events of the actual day and then the lead up to it. Were there any concerns expressed beforehand? And if there were, why then do we allow the events that happened that day to take place?
0: So, this is a dumb technical question. Would there be recordings of these conversations captured by the NSA or other intelligence organizations?
1: I don't I don't believe so, but okay. <laughs> I probably so, won't so get too into so yeah. it. Yeah, so we'd still
0: be going by the word of these people on the calls uh, under oath at most, but it, but it would still be a bare description of what happened.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's going it, to, it'll be interesting to see whether they're willing to testify honestly and comply with subpoenas. I think that's part of it is, are you willing to come and say, this is what happened on that phone call? Are there text messages? Because let me tell you in this white house,
0: right. so I know for that's back, an that many of these yeah.
1: people text. Yeah. Right.
0: Okay. So that's, that's a good example of whether it'd be a, an actual record of it would, would be the text. And regardless of the deleting or whatever that stuff would still exist by yep. some telecom company some somewhere apple would be able to yeah. find it on their on their phone it gets okay. a little
1: more challenging when it's encrypted right. and it is known that many in the white house communicated via encrypted means
0: okay so so what does this in your mind say about the future of the District of Columbia's safety. Because I think one of the, the things that it really brought up is like this this idea of like, as you pointed out, Governor Maryland is like unable to send in the National Guard, the, the city's, you know, it's it's sort of this weird anomaly. It's not really responsible for its own safety. It has sort of this blend of, of home rule, but Congress is ultimately in charge. Do we need to have, and this is a part of the constitution, we sort of never imagined having to test, but in an age of political extremism, as, as you point out, do we need to have some sort of check and balance in the system for not having, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird to say, but not having the president necessarily in charge of all federal security or, or capital security to the extent that that ultimately comes down to the National Guard?
1: Yeah, that's a fair question. I think that that is something maybe that the committee, maybe that's one of the recommendations or something that's discussed by the committee in terms of what they recommend when all of the findings come to light and when they see what has happened here. I do think that DC, you know, they're in a they're in a tight they're in a tough spot is what I'll say. Uh, They're, you know, how much authority does the mayor actually have? In terms of that, because I think that for her to deploy the National Guard, she has to get approval from it. She, she just, she just, you know, she's not like the governor who can just enact it um, and call them forward. Um, she has to go through a several-layer approval process, and that's where they rely on the Pentagon, and they're waiting for the Pentagon to act and trying to figure out what's happening there in terms of deploying it. So I think um, I certainly think that's something that should be looked at and reviewed and see and, and see if that's necessary.
0: Okay, so so yeah, sort of final question, which is if you're you're a Republican, still I still I take it, you've you you know served in in the Trump White House, li- lifelong Republican. Is that fair? I don't wanna I don't wanna put words in your mouth. What what would your message be to Republicans in Kevin McCarthy's district, um, who we're gonna make sure to hear hear this episode? And and Democrats and independents, everybody in Kevin McCarthy's district should should hear this episode. What would your message be? Be to them as somebody who I don't think anybody could portray as some uh, you know, liberal Nancy Pelosi loving uh, uh, you know, sort of communist. What, what would you say?
1: I would say that honestly, if you really care about true conservatism, if you care really about the core values that the Republican party used to stand for, um, the values of Lincoln, the values of people like John McCain, right? I call myself a John McCain Republican. I think that we are in a very critical time to really examine who the leaders we are electing as part of the Republican Party and those in charge. I think this is probably the most important time to really take a step back and evaluate. And you know, I think that there are a lot of people who are center-right, who are more moderate, or center-left, who feel like they don't really have a home right now in a political party. That is fair. I've spoken to many people that feel that way where they're not quite, you know, they don't identify with some of the more right-wing far-right Republicans or what's happening here, they actually detest it. They're not okay with it. Or they don't identify with the far left. And so I think that they're I think I think it's important for them to know that there are a whole group of us in the middle and we have a lot more in common. Than we all think. And I think that we are in a very critical time, very divided across our country. But enabling and supporting leaders like Kevin McCarthy, who continue to drive forward dangerous narratives and more extreme, the more extremist views in the Republican Party, I think are dangerous and are in the end hurting the Republican Party more than helping it overall. Um, And you know, and I think we're seeing a lot of republicans walk away from the party and i we we certainly i will tell you we are a group of people who are republicans former republicans conservatives i think i call myself now for the most part uh you know a radically moderate conservative i <laughs> just to, <laughs> um i don't know because i don't <clears throat> identify with what the republican brand is um and i think that when you have conversations with your neighbors and friends and family i think you know i think we are a lot more, we have a lot more in common than I think what we're seeing right now that's being pushed and espoused by the leadership in the Republican party. Um, I think we have more in common than what they're, they're claiming and the way they're going about it. And so I think that, um, I think it's important to take a step back and really start realizing what's happening here. And it, I think now is the time. Like if you want to make an impact and you wanna change what is happening here where we get back to actual real policy and governing and really coming across the table and making a difference and working together um, with Democrats uh, and, and really helping to get more to a bipartisan way, every day right now um, matters, I think, and pushing back on some of these narratives that are happening right now. And I think certainly it'll be very important to really get involved in the 2022 elections and support people who are like-minded and take a stand against this. Cause I think that we are in a very critical crossroads right now. I think it's going to be challenging. I don't see this changing anytime soon, but like I know California, yes, you're right. Everybody thinks it's is liberal, but you have a major role to, role to play. You could really change the trajectory of what this is. And I'm speaking to conservatives and moderates in California who I know exist in abundance, even though they don't actually, you know, they, it may not be acknowledged, but they're there. And so don't let them push people out. You know, Don't let them push people out like Congressman Valadeo who took a stand, right? I know we're watching the redistricting and what's happening there, but don't let them push people out who took a stand when it was really needed and who are now sort of um, being boxed out. And we're seeing that happen with Liz Cheney in Wyoming, we're seeing a lot of just ugly vitriol that's surfacing. Um, And I think that hopefully the conservatives that are out there know that we're better than that as Americans. Uh,
0: Well, it's a really important message. Um, I'll I'll just only add to that, that to me, the biggest lesson of this whole time period, particularly January 6th is, We need people to be courageous and stand up and do the right thing, even when you're saying something to your friends that they don't wanna hear. I think we have too few people like that in this country. You are one of them. Um, And I wanna personally thank you for doing that. I can only imagine how hard that has been at times. I can imagine the vitriol you get on social media and everything else, there's consequences for speaking the truth. And uh, we need more people like you. So <clears throat> thank you for doing what you're doing. And um, I, think, I think it's exceptionally brave and I think it's having an impact. So really appreciate you being on the show.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate the kind words and, and support.
0: Thank you for listening to the Nation State of Play podcast powered by Neptune Ops. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at neptuneops.com or on Twitter at at State of P1. Again, that's at Nation State of P, and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. This is the Nation State of Play podcast, exploring the inside political stories driving public policy in California, powered by Neptune Ops and presented by IVC Media. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and thank you for listening.